Thrive Suite Productions presents The Perception Veil. Our lives are defined by boundaries, and for the most part, we are better off having sharply defined lines of demarcation. As stark as drawn lines on an athletic field or walls of a building, or as intangible and unseeable as the boundaries human society places on individuals. Respecting those confines and social norms keeps us safe and within the rules of the game. There is a boundary between the here and the after, but on occasion that line is breached by some ethereal entity. Sometimes it must be guided and other times forced to return to the other side of the veil. Fortunately, there are some among us who have the courage and ability to do just that. This is one of those stories. I received this story several years ago from a woman who in no way wanted to be identified. She took steps to mask her identity and others who were involved in this story. And while the old saying is, time heals all wounds, Time cannot exactly erase all memories. It was evident that though a lot of time had elapsed since this encounter and her telling me, the terror was still real, and the memory of the events, and of one person in particular, still haunted her. The one thing telling the story did for her, though, was provide a release valve after holding in this tension for so many years. And there was also the hope that if anybody else had encountered something similar, that they weren't crazy. So here is her terrifying story. It was May of 2000 in St. Louis, Missouri. I was dating this guy named Jack, and Jack and I had gone over to my friend Brenda's house. She had recently rented a house, and she said some weird things were happening around the house. Originally, it was going to be her and her boyfriends, but they split up after only a few weeks of living there. She said she would keep the place and took his name off the lease. Now, when I was talking to her on the phone, she seemed really rattled, but she wouldn't tell me exactly what was wrong or what was going on. So, Jack agreed to go with me to her house, and we got there around 8.30 that night. It was an old brick house with tall wooden frame windows, a big front porch. Brenda heard us pull up, and she met us outside. I had forgotten to tell her I was bringing Jack, and she wasn't exactly happy that he was there. She pulled me aside and asked me why he was there. I told her that because she didn't tell me exactly what was going on, I figured maybe we could use a guy around just in case. She relented and calmed down a little, and we sat down on the porch steps, and she began telling us what happened. She said it all started about a week before. She would hear noises in the basement at night. At first, she thought it was, you know, just rats or maybe a stray cat had snuck in. After the second night of this, she went downstairs to see if she could find any evidence of an animal or possibly locate the source of the noise, because it seemed to be getting louder from the first night to the next. She had some mouse traps that she was going to put around the basement. She turned the light on at the top of the stairs, which were at the end of the hall just next to the kitchen. She went down the stairs and turned on the light at the bottom. 
and that's when she said she got this weird feeling while she was down there, but she brushed it off as just that old, creepy basement vibe. She finished placing the traps and made her way back to the bottom of the steps. Before going back up, she stopped to make sure the cellar doors that opens to the backyard were locked. Now, understand this. If you wanted to go from the basement to the outside, you opened this solid oak door that had two deadbolts and a two-by-four that secured it even more. And that led to stairs that went up to another door that had three padlocks on it and another two-by-four securing it. The point is, nothing could get into the basement from the outside. The three windows that were in the basement were all at ground level, which put them slightly below the ceiling in the basement. Each window had two sliding bolt locks on the inside and a weird metal guard around the outside. So the basement was pretty well secured. But, you know, this is South St. Louis, and to be honest, it's not the safest neighborhood. After checking the doors, she turned to face the stairs, and she got this sudden feeling of someone being behind her. She said it was like that feeling of impending doom. She never turned around to look. She just ran for the stairs, climbed them, and slammed the door behind her, never once looking back. She said the whole time she was running, she could just feel there was something behind her, but she never heard a sound. She locked the door and sat down at the kitchen table. She opened a bottle of vodka and poured herself a drink just to calm her nerves. And later that night, after going to bed, she heard walking around upstairs, but she was alone in the house. Brenda had a nine-year-old son whose room was upstairs, but he was staying with her parents for a few weeks. She was not going upstairs to confront who or whatever that was, but she grabbed a baseball bat from next to her bed and walked to the bottom of the stairs. There's a door there that opens up to the stairs, but the lock on it had been broken when she moved in and the landlord hadn't fixed it yet. So she closed the door and pushed a piece of furniture up against it. She then proceeded to turn on every light and sat up for the rest of the night, clinging to that baseball bat. Once the sun came up in the morning, she finally felt safe enough to get some sleep. This went on for a few days, and her co-workers began to notice that she wasn't looking well, and she admitted that she was exhausted from a severe lack of sleep. Her boss told her to take the rest of the week off, so she went home that afternoon and sat down to watch some television. She had these little figurines on top of her TV, and she said one fell off and shattered on the floor. That was disconcerting, but she passed it off as unfortunate, cleaned it up, and came back to continue watching television in the hopes of calming down enough to get a nap. After an hour, she had managed to doze off when another figurine fell off the TV and shattered, waking her up. Two in one day seemed a bit much, and more than a little frustrated at all the things that had been going on and now this, she screamed at the house, What the hell do you want? Right then, another figurine flew off the television, but this one didn't fall. Instead, she said it flew across the room at her, like it had been thrown in anger. And then that's when she called me. Now that we had an idea of what she felt was going on, 
we decided to take a look inside. Now, Jack got a bit of the macho attitude and said, I'll handle this. I'm thinking, if what she is saying is true, what the hell are you going to do, punch it? We walked in to see the two broken figurines that she hadn't cleaned up yet. And just as she said, one was in pieces next to the television, and the other remnants were across the room. All of the lights were on, like she had described, and Jack did a walkthrough of the house and didn't find anything. We gathered in her bedroom, which was between the living room and the kitchen. It was a bit odd, but I noticed this set up in a lot of houses and apartments in St. Louis. Never could figure out why, but anyway... We sat there and we talked for about an hour when I saw Jack staring and then pointing at something in the hallway. So I looked in that direction and then screamed at the top of my lungs. A little red ball was slowly rolling down the hallway. We watched as it got to the end of the hallway. Then it turned around the corner and rolled up the adjacent hallway towards the basement door. Jack borrowed my phone to call a friend of his who had some experience with paranormal stuff. His friend Tommy showed up about 30 minutes later, so we filled him in on the details, and he felt like this was beyond his expertise, but he'd be willing to stay the night and see what happened. A few hours later, we heard sounds in the basement. It sounded like someone was banging around. Brenda said that this was louder than she'd ever heard before. And we could all tell that this was not a mouse, was not a cat. It sounded like someone was down there making that noise. Jack grabbed the baseball bat and he and Tommy went to check on what was going on downstairs. But as Jack took the first steps down, he stopped. Did you hear that? And we all nodded yes. That's voices. As we all listened closer, it sounded like chanting. Hearing those voices was the first time in my life I have ever been so scared that I feared for my life. Jack and Tommy crept down the stairs, despite our pleading with them not to. And Jack reached up and pulled the string for the light at the bottom of the stairs. And the moment the light came on, the voices stopped. Jack and Tommy took a quick look around and they didn't see anybody. And after a few seconds, we heard a pop and the tinkling of glass on the basement floor. At that point, Jack and Tommy bolted up the stairs, slammed the door to the basement, locked it, and then pushed the dining room table up against it. Tommy said the light bulb just exploded. Now, at this point, I'm somewhere between this has to be a prank of some kind and get me the hell out of here. A few seconds later, 
Benita was full-on pointing to get me the hell out of here. Loud banging started on both the door leading to the basement and now the door leading to the second floor like someone was trying to break through. Tough guy Jack, who was going to punch this thing in the face a few hours back, grabbed the phone and called the police. He told them he wasn't sure if it was someone that had broken in or someone playing a really bad prank, but that we were all afraid for our lives. The cops said they would send someone and told us not to wait in the house. It took a while for them to get there for sure. Two hours later, the police showed up, checked the house, and to no one's surprise, did not find anything. The cops were sure it was just someone playing a prank, but if anything happened again, give them a call back and they would check it out again. Now, by this point, we had been up all night. It was about six in the morning, and we needed to get some sleep and then figure some things out. After we woke up later in the morning, Jack had been thinking, and he said he was close with the priest at his church, and he was going to call him. The priest came over and listened to our stories while we all sat out front. I did not want to go back in that house. In fact, none of us did. After we filled him in on the noises, the flying figurines, the rolling red ball, the voices, the exploding light bulb, and the banging on the doors, the priest said he would take a walk around the house and cleanse it. So he began reciting prayers and doing the sign of the cross and using a little vial of what I supposed was holy water as he walked through the front door. I don't think two minutes had passed when the priest ran out of the house and slammed the door behind him. Now, he looked at Tommy and he asked him a question. Do you still know how to reach him? Tommy replied, Yeah, but I think he retired. Now, at that moment, something flew against the inside of the door and shattered. The priest looked at Tommy and said, Call him. I asked who they were talking about, and they just told me not to worry about it. Tommy looked at Brenda and told her he was going to get someone to take care of this. About six o'clock that night, Tommy showed up with this tall, skinny guy. Do you remember David Carradine's character Kane in the 1970s TV show Kung Fu? This guy reminded me of him and how he was built and how he acted. But he had this long black hair and piercing blue eyes. He was dressed all in black. He nodded to everyone as he walked up and asked quietly whose house this was. Brenda indicated it was hers, and he asked for permission to have a look around, which was of course met with no opposition. He told us in a soft voice to wait outside as he opened the door and walked in. Immediately, a figurine flew across the room, shattering on the far wall. Then. One flew directly at him, and in one of those cool, I'm a badass moments, he caught it and asked, really, is that all you got? As he stepped in further, oh, man, this guy was Kane. 
The front door slammed shut on its own. A few minutes went by, and he came back outside just as calm as when he walked up. Now, I'm going to call this guy Kane for the rest of the story because he just gave off that badass aura of being cool and calm. And he told us to come back inside. Five minutes before, I didn't want to step foot back in there, but somehow, with this guy in charge, I I felt like we were walking into a knife fight with a flamethrower. He wanted to observe things through the night to see what he was up against, and then he would begin the process of getting rid of it. That night, we witnessed a lot of activity. As we sat in the living room, we heard the banging upstairs and downstairs. And then we heard something clawing at some wood in the bedroom. Kane asked if Brenda had a cat, which she didn't. He walked into the bedroom and discovered the noise was coming from the closet. Jack suggested we open it and see what it was, but Kane said, No, let it come out on its own. The calm manner in which he spoke was really comforting in this noisy and disconcerting environment. So now we were all sitting in the bedroom waiting for something to emerge from the closet. And Kane made a comment that he hates masks, referring to the three Asian-style masks Brenda had hanging on her wall. She asked why, and added that she thought they were beautiful. And Kane just smiled and said, They are. But in situations like this, you never want an entity to have a face other than its own. Brenda looked puzzled and asked what he meant. He told everyone to move to the bed and look at the masks while he turned out the lights in the living room, the hallway, and the bedroom. It took about 30 seconds for us all to notice it, but the eyes of the mask on the far left, closest to the closet, were glowing. Tommy looked at Kane and said how creepy that was, and that moments earlier, he thought that it had been breathing on him but figured it was just the central air or something. Brenda informed Tommy that she did not have central air. Tommy grabbed a broom and knocked the mask from the wall. Kane laughed and turned the lights back on, grabbed the other two masks off the wall and put them on the dresser face down. And that's when I saw my first whatever it was run across the living room very fast. It came from the area of the front door and ran toward the wall that would be behind the closet. That frightened me horribly, but I couldn't make a sound. Kane hadn't seen it, and he asked me what was wrong, but I couldn't even answer him. Then he sat down next to me, which, honestly, I don't remember him doing, and he placed two fingers to my right temple, and I was at ease again. Once the sun rose in the morning, all the banging and scratching and movement in the house stopped. Light coming through the tall windows of the house gave us all a sense of serenity. Kane went and opened the closet and saw the inside of the door had these huge scratch marks all over it. 
Before rummaging through the closet, he kindly asked Brenda if it would be okay to look a little more thoroughly. She said that was fine. She was fine with anything at this point, really. He found a small knife with a wooden blade on the floor of the closet behind some shoeboxes. He asked who it belonged to, and she said it was probably her ex's, but why was it important? He showed her some handmade etching on the blade. It was a circle with some lines inside that all ended in little circles. He said it was the symbol of an ancient god that a lot of cultists had prayed to. It was a type of demon. I wish I could remember the name. It sounded really weird, like Nero or Nib-Nib or something like that. Cain then asked where her ex spent most of his time when he lived there. Brenda said he spent a lot of his time in the basement. She didn't know what he did down there because she never joined him and he never invited her. So he went down to the basement, and it didn't take him long to find a giant version of that same symbol carved into Brenda's basement floor. Cain also pointed out symbols on the walls. Earth elements, such as earth, air, fire, and water. Those weren't the words he used, but he told us what they meant. He said it looked like her ex-boyfriend had been trying to perform some sort of ritual. But the horrifying part to her and us was, he said, that either Brenda, her son, or both of them were being targeted by this ritual. The good news was that the ex-boyfriend was gone and that he was a moron. The symbols were not drawn right and were off in their positioning. The ritual would not have worked. The bad news was that in attempting to perform this ritual and having no clue what to do, he must have caught the attention of a random dark entity and drawn it in. Oh boy. Well, at least at this point, he seemed to know what he was dealing with. And he wasn't running for the door like the priest had, so that was a good sign. We all went back upstairs, and he gave us a plan of action. First, we covered the windows, blocking all outside light. Kane drew some symbols on pieces of paper to put on each of the first floor doors, front, back, basement, and upstairs. He attached a piece of tape to each sheet of paper, then gave a different one to each of us. And he told us, when he said, now place our sheets on our respective door with the symbol facing inwards. As night fell, the activity reached a boiling point. Then all the lights went out, and the closet door opened, and we saw it. It emerged. I don't know what it was, huge. This house had really high ceilings, I'm guessing here, but I would say 11 to 12 feet high. And this blob of darkness exiting the closet was about a foot shy of the ceiling. It seemed like everything in the house was shaking. Things were flying around, more of figurine shadows, books flying from shelves, the bed, tables, bouncing on the floor. 
and that's when Kane yelled, Now! We all ran to place our symbols. I don't know where we mustered the courage to do that, but he seemed to instill that in us. And then Kane began chanting something like, Diner, cool, baba, wee, or something. He said it a few times. And then he said this really long verse. It wasn't biblical. And it didn't really sound of Christian origin like you might hear in horror movies. And then the big, black, dark entity was gone. And the lights came back on. And from that point on, Nothing ever happened again. To protect Brenda and the house a little further, Kane carved these small, barely noticeable symbols over every door and window. Brenda went on living there for another three years, with no strangeness of any kind ever happening again. And she was very thankful that her son never had to experience any of that. But I spoke to her son a few years back when he was in college. He was taking a psychology class and he was telling me about a paper that he had to write about dreams. His paper was on this recurring dream that he had as a child. In it, this creature chased him. But then a tall, thin guy with long black hair and glowing blue eyes would quietly show up and chased the creature away. We laughed about it, but I knew from talking with Brenda that she had never told him about that story about what had happened to us over those few days. The reason I decided to finally write this down and send it to you is that I was talking with a woman that I work with here in Oklahoma who grew up in St. Louis. We were talking about the old days growing up there, and then she got off on a tangent about if I believed in ghosts and spirits and stuff. I simply told her that I felt like most people have at least one event in their life that they can't explain. She said, yeah, she had a few like that. And then she proceeded to tell me that when she was young, thankfully, she had this friend. And then she used the actual name of the guy who helped Brenda through her ordeal in those days. I was shocked. I asked her if he fit the description of the man that I called Cain. And she said, yeah, that would fit as he got older. And she had been only 10 or 11 when he helped her. People like this should be thanked. And... I never really got to because after this was all over, he quietly left the house. He didn't take any payment, just quietly walked away like Cain into the desert at the end of an episode. I haven't seen him since, so I sent this your way as a way to hopefully get the word out that we were so very thankful for what he did. I hope he's doing well in life, and then he needs to know he really does touch people in a way that cannot be described. It's not an obsession or anything, but you never really forget those eyes, or that half-cocked grin, or the feeling of safety that you get from just being near him. So, if you're out there, Kane, 
just know that you are appreciated. And thank you. Hey, this is Steve White, the host of The Perception Veil. Thanks for stopping by and listening to this episode. It was sent to me by a real person about her real experience. So, if you have a paranormal, supernatural story you would like to share, I'd love to read it. Or, even better, have you tell your own story. Send your story to theperceptionveil at gmail.com and I'll be in touch. Also, if you like the podcast, rate and review wherever you listen. And if you would like to support in another way, you can buy me a coffee. There's a link in the show notes. Be well, and I will see you on the other side of the veil soon. This has been a Thrive Suite production. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.